Peak Wealth Management proudly presents Finding True Wealth with certified financial planner Nick Hopwood and accredited investment fiduciary Jim Pilot. Nick and Jim believe by making simple, good financial decisions, you can retire with confidence. And now, let's turn it over to your hosts, Nick and Jim. Hey, it's Nick Hopwood, founder and president of Peak Wealth Management. And today on Finding True Wealth Podcast, we're going to be talking with Mr. Benjamin Levine with 3D Asset Management. 3D is one of our UMAX providers, and we're going to ask Ben, as Chief Investment Strategist at 3D, looking back at 2019, what worked, what didn't work, what were the major themes, and then think ahead to 2020 and uh, ask him how he's positioning portfolios, what he's worried about, what he's excited about, and uh, looking into that crystal ball a little bit. So enjoy time with Ben. Ben, it's great to speak with you again. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I think we talked about the markets mid mid twenty eighteen as a little uh, meet the manager episode. So we're we're back at it about a year and a half later. Yeah, and it's been an interesting year to say the least. Um, certainly, this has been a phenomenal year for both equity and fixed income. I'm, I call it the year of long duration. And what I mean by long duration is duration is a concept in the finance about interest rate sensitivity, but it also can be applied to asset classes where much of the uh, value of the asset class is derived from its future value as opposed to its present. Uh, typically, long duration assets are ones whose cash flow comes at the far end as opposed to at the beginning. And when you apply that to something like equities, um, you look at you 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 can um, apply it to something like growth equities that are trading at a significant premium relative to the broader market. Well, that's implying that much of the future value of that company isn't coming from current earnings or dividends, but from the prospect of future earnings and future dividends and and the and the significant growth. And when you're in a long duration type environment. Um, you know, with interest rates coming down close to zero levels in many parts of the world, um, then uh, essentially your your uh, your future value um, investors are willing to pay up for significant future value because um, the discounting rate has come down so much. So when you look at duration, long duration, um, with uh, equities outperforming. Um, Risk assets generally outperforming, but paradoxically also long duration bonds outperforming, which you know would would imply a deflationary type of scenario. Um, if if you had been overweight, both U.S. large cap growth, long duration growth equities, as well as uh, long treasuries, long corporate bonds, you would have done very well this year. That's why I, I characterize this year as, as sort of being the year of long duration. So Ben, when it comes to long duration assets, one of the things that really surprised me in 2019 was the long-term treasury bond because I don't, I can't remember what the yield was at the start of the year, but right now it's right around 2% and some of these uh, long-term treasury funds have made over 20% this year and you really wouldn't have expected that on January 1. So, you know, the, I, I doubt it's repeatable, right? When we look forward to 2020. Well, yeah, I think for an, another 20% return, you would basically need uh, interest rates to go close to zero. Um, and barring a, a major uh, global contraction, that's likely not the scenario. So I would definitely temper expectations on what investors can expect from the bond market going forward. We've had much of our total return um, 
realized this year with the drop in interest rates. Not to say that they couldn't drop any further, but you know, to repeat what we had, what we experienced in 2019 with both long treasuries and long corporates. I mean, investment grade corporates were the the best performing segment within fixed income this year. Uh, you would you would definitely need to see uh, a scenario where globally. Uh, rates go to zero or even negative, driven by uh, central bank quantitative easing. Um, and we I don't saw, say, we've seen interest go rates go, go negative in a lot of different countries. They've come up a little bit uh, as the year closes out. But, you know, could the U.S. see negative interest rates in the future? I don't think the, the Fed has necessarily ruled out pursuing a negative interest rate policy um, where the, basically the Fed, uh, in an attempting to reflate the U.S. economy and, and, and prevent it from sliding into deflationary territory with uh, contracting prices and this uh, contracting economic activity. Um, certainly, their, their working papers would suggest a combination of negative interest rates and outright debt monetization via monetary, um, modern monetary theory. Um, but I think the public's appetite for that is 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 not where perhaps the academia appetite is for it and and that's why i think we're starting to see a reversal take place in both europe and japan uh you, you know after multiple years of both of those areas um experiencing quantitative easing and negative interest rates with hardly any growth to show for it um i think uh, in some ways the, the 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 negative rate or the zero rate hasn't been the panacea uh, for those countries, and so perhaps maybe that would kind of temper our um, willingness to to go down the same route as as Europe and Japan. Um, I think ultimately, though, that interest rates are are driven by uh, nominal growth and nominal and the component to nominal growth is inflation. So, unless we start to see a return of inflation, um, I don't anticipate um, a major. Uh, upward spike in, in interest rates, but at, at the very least, um, I, I would expect that that nominal interest rate should follow uh, inflation. Uh, and if, if if inflation expectations remain steady or maybe even increase, um, then I think that would kind of set the backdrop for perhaps a, a backup in interest rates uh, heading into the year. And, and speaking of inflation, the last several years have been very muted, and the Fed seems like it's struggling to even uh, engineer any inflation. What do you think, what do you think the chances are of, um, of more inflation in the future? I, I read an interesting take from a strategist that, that says basically um, it's not hard for central banks to inflate. Um, they can inflate 10% if they wanted to. What's, what's much more difficult is inflating, say, to 2%. So trying to engineer inflation in general isn't hard for central banks. Trying to do it in a moderate fashion is much more difficult. It's like trying to land a, a, a 747 on top of a little island strip or something. It's it's not easy uh, task to do. And so it, this kind of um, – this, this target of, of trying to create a monetary environment where inflation can – can increase two percent a year and and have price stability as well as um, you know 
full uh, economic activity where the economy is is performing at or or slightly above potential um, it's hard to do if um, if if the economic environment is is such that, that, that nominal growth is much harder to achieve uh, even if you're trying to uh, pull out all the stops on on uh, monetary policy um, and and so um, you know, so globally, at least across the developed markets, you know, we've had sort of low, low nominal and and low low real growth expectations. Um, I mean, it, what what I find interesting too is is that the the core component, the PCE uh, or the personal consumption expenditure uh, deflator that that the Fed likes to track, uh, that's that continues to run around one and a half to one point six percent. So, I think the Fed feels like it has, uh, based on their last conference, um, uh, rate rate setting conference, that that they feel like they have some runway. That even if inflation were to say grow a little hot, um, that they will they be willing to to um, have a policy in place that accommodates say a hotter near term hotter inflation, so as to not um, implement another mistake by tightening too soon. So I think the asymmetry um, inflation uh, policy stance that the Fed has taken suggests that that we very well could see uh, if inflation were to come back, say in 2020, through some sort of global reflationary recovery from the prior year, then then the central banks I think would be less likely to tap on the brakes. Hope you know. Just to see if if this global reflation does take hold, uh, the risk to that is is that um, once you allow little inflation into the system, does that kind of release a Pandora's box of even greater inflation down the road, which you know would would um, be problematic for central banks to try and get ahead of because they have taken the deliberate decision to purposely stay behind the curve on inflation as opposed to staying ahead of it. Let's take a second and look back at 2019 as the year played out. We started the year kind of uh, in the hole with the fourth quarter of 2018. You know, people forget that the S&P and the Dow actually dropped approximately 19.9% in the fourth quarter of 2018 before the Santa Claus rally kicked in starting on December 26th. So the first quarter was basically the mere opposite of that fourth quarter of 2018. And we had more of the same with the S&P leading most other asset classes, including international and small caps and growth over value and the U.S. over international. You know, how many more years can that pattern continue itself where the S&P is the leader of the world before we see some sort of mean reversion? Yeah, so um, when we wrote our year-end commentary last year um, and – this was after the big correction that we saw in the fourth quarter with credit spreads also blowing out. Um, the S&P at one point had traded down close to 14 and a half times forward earnings. And, uh, and, it, and, and it actually ended the year at around 14, 14 and a half times. Um, as of November 30th, that multiple had, has, has expanded to 17.8 times. Um, when you look at uh, what earnings were actually generated this year, I'm talking about the index level. Um, uh, according to FactSet, assuming um, estimates come in 
or assuming uh, fourth quarter reporting come in as uh, come in as what's being estimated right now by the street, we're basically looking at flat earnings growth for our year. In other words, the entire market advance that we've seen this year, the the plus twenty percent, the the three point multiple that we see in the S and P is well, it's all come from multiple expansion. Um, so we've gone from fourteen. 14 and a half times forward earnings at the beginning of the year. We're looking at 17.8 times right now, just over three points multiple expansion with no earnings growth really to show for that. It, it really has been a, a market appreciation type of rally without any uh, meaningful earnings growth to, to support that. Now, some would dismiss that saying, well, um, the aggregate is being overly influenced by, by negative earnings experiences from the likes of the energy and the material sector. But, but even there, you know, when, when investing in the aggregate, you earn what the aggregate earns in terms of uh, earnings and dividends. And, and so far, investors this year have enjoyed a 20 plus percent return uh, in the U.S. markets, and and pretty much all of that, um, a pre, all of that has been driven by multiple expansion as opposed to actual earnings growth. Um, not to say that we can't expect another solid year in in the U.S. markets um, for next year, especially you know heading into election. But hard to imagine that we see another three points of multiple expansion, um, given that you know the S&P had topped out at just. Uh, above 18 times at the end of 2017 um, before correcting all the way down to 14.8 times at, at the end of 2018. So um, I I was wrong to, to think that we wouldn't see a major multiple expansion like what we communicated uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, I did not anticipate a three-point multiple expansion in the S&P on top of a uh, significant drop in U.S. Treasury yields that, that saw the 10-year hit 1.5% at one point in August. Um, but uh, again, I think we, when, when um, writing our commentary for the upcoming year, I just don't anticipate us repeating that kind of experience like what we saw this past year. On the other hand, I could very well see uh, international markets catching up to the U.S. for 2020, especially because we are likely going to see some fiscal expansion, government stimulus announced by, by both Europe and Japan as, as they realize that they've hit the limits on what monetary policy can achieve in the way of, of, of rebounding growth. I think resolution over Brexit as well as a possible interim resolution on U.S.-China trade. Uh, we could also see um, a renewed pickup in global trade, which would definitely be benefit the export-heavy areas like Germany, Japan, and Korea. Um, and, and with that, you know, perhaps with more certainty coming into the macro environment, businesses will be willing to uh, make long-term investments and, and expand their capital, and that could also um, be beneficial for international growth. So not to say that the rest of the world will catch up to the S&P in the way of multiple expansion, but you know, at the margin, I could see the risk reward shifting back to international markets, shifting to a weaker dollar, and seeing kind of a renewed um, appetite for the global reflation uh, that we didn't see this past year. On the same token, what about growth versus value looking forward? Because, you know, since 08, 09, growth has pretty much doubled what value has done since that recession. And, uh, you know, people who are value investors have been kind of left in the dust. You know, should we capitulate and, and dump our value and go all into growth? You know, tell me what you think about the growth versus value story. 
I mean, the growth versus value story has, has there is some fundamental merit to it because when you look at profitability, when you look at um, our return on equity metrics and so forth, um, much of the growth expansion has actually been met by actual earnings growth and 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 increased profitability. When you um, uh, and 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 in the opposite case with with small cap value or with value in general, we've not seen you know uh, growth. Uh, we've not seen as much growth or or um, expanded profitability. And and this is an issue of the fact that we've we've not had sort of a rising tide lift all boats environment like what we enjoyed in the mid 2000s when it was the opposite when value was handily outperforming growth and even during the last decade where the S&P had essentially traded flat from 2000 to 2009 um, value significantly outperformed growth and so even in that environment investors were able to enjoy a positive market return because they were invested in value and then that's been the opposite case now you know in the subsequent 10 years where growth has handily outperformed value since the financial crisis so um so one has to ask themselves whether that environment will that we've seen so far this uh this past get decade will persist in the next decade and and you know the academics and and much of what 3d's investment process is based on suggests that 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 shouldn't be the case because ultimately Capital markets are rational and they reward investors for or compensate investors for the risk that they're willing to take on. And value has been shown to be a risk factor along with uh, market size or small cap and market beta uh, or market risk um, as essentially being risk premiums that have been compensated over the long run. So in the near term for value to, to perform well versus growth, we need to see that um, profitability gap narrow. We need to see the ROE of either the NASDAQ 100 or uh, large growth indices come down because of competitive pressures or because many of these growth companies uh, have enjoyed significant market share um, gains and, and expansions in profitability. We'll see those get eroded away. And likewise, we need to see sort of the beaten down sectors improve their profitability, either through management initiatives, activism, uh, or, or a better growth environment uh, for them to earn better returns on capital and, and to narrow that, that, that valuation discrepancy. But I would say, I would posit that we've seen a, you know, this is significant gap in valuations between growth and value can only persist um, as long as the, the profitability and the growth gaps widen. And it's, it's hard to imagine that they continue to widen from, from, from current levels. One of the major stories in 2019 was the yield curve inversion. You know, since the summer when it inverted a little bit uh, temporarily, it's steepened, it's, it's steepened a little bit at this point. You know, what does that tell you about the, the prospects for recession? You know, do you get, are you concerned about the yield curve? Are you concerned about any other data points pointing to recession? And other outlets seem to maybe say that there's about a 30 to 35% chance, call it a third chance of recession next year. What are your thoughts on the R word recession? Um, I don't see it. Um, but that's not to suggest it couldn't happen. Most recessions generally aren't predicted by the uh, consensus outlook among strategists and, and Wall Street. Um, but that's, but that that's, you know. But but even there, though, I mean, I would su suggest that it, it doesn't really look like the ingredients are 
setting themselves up for a recession in 2020, maybe 21 or 22, depending on, on the course of direction that fiscal policy is taken and, and so forth. Um, but you know, when we look at things like the yield curve, um, the, the curve brief, and we focus on the two to 10 year term structure as opposed to the three month to, to 10 year, which I know um, other observers uh, have, have pointed out as, as having gone negative or inverted. The, the two to 10 year part of the curve briefly inverted uh, during the, the market sell off in, in mid August uh, when we saw the 10 year treasury drop all the way to one and a half percent. I think that reflect was just more a reflection that the Fed was still behind the curve in terms of, um, you know, trying to hold steadfast to its um, uh, wanting to to view any sort of easing off of, of current policy of the policies at the time as just being, you know, temporary or insurance rate cuts, not sort of fully realizing that you know, maintaining a tight policy in the face of uh, uh, collapsing global trade and, and manufacturing contraction and so forth. Um, I think that was the curve's way of basically telling the Fed that that they're they're behind the curve um, and that they need to to ease policy and and um, and uh, not you know with the Fed not realizing that that tight policies and trying to maintain the current trajectory of interest rates was was leading to a major strengthening of the U.S. dollar, which was squeezing uh, dollar-based borrowers overseas and and it only exasperating the conditions. So. Um, I, I would, you know, I would suggest that, that that the Fed now, having enacted three rate cuts this year and effectively being on hold uh, for the time being, even willing to entertain a hotter inflation environment, would suggest that that we've um, at least from uh, a financial condition, a tightening financial condition standpoint, from an overly tight Fed policy, that we're likely not going to see a recession uh, in next year. Um, usually, it's it's tighter monetary policy that is what tips the economy into into a recession, and so and we're not as long as inflation, really, yeah, we're not seeing yeah, that. You know, as long as inflation doesn't get too hot and and force the Fed's hand to to have to tighten policy overly, you know, to to uh, go from behind the inflationary curve to ahead of the inflationary curve, I just don't see. Um, at least in the near term over the next year, the, the U.S. backsliding into recession. So on the flip side, I want to say 2018 GDP was 3%, 2019 more like 2%. What are we going to have to do to get GDP to run a little hotter? The tax, you know, the tax cuts are over with. Um, is it a lack of productivity growth? Is it less uh, population growth? What, you know, what can we do to jumpstart GDP? Well, I think some of it is just a reticence on the part of companies to invest, given the uncertainty around global trade, around Brexit. Um, if we see a near-term, I mean, if we, well, we're probably likely going to see a resolution of Brexit with what happened with the UK elections last night, the uh, conservative Tory party locking in a solid majority. Well, we will likely see a resolution to Brexit, probably the, the deal that Boris Johnson had proposed um, before the elections. Um, and you remove that uncertainty, then then businesses, at least in, in Europe, now have a better feel for what um, the the, the uh, trading um, environment is going to look like. Um, 
in that region and 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 if we are able to come to some agreement on a phase one deal and with the bigger issues around you know ip transfer and and um and 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 technology transfers and so forth with china um, being pushed out past the 2020 election at least you see some near-term resolution there and and that i think um those two resolutions is what was holding back manufacturing, what was holding back uh, company investing. And so, you know, if we remove those roadblocks, those those major macro uncertainties, then we could definitely see an uptick in capital investing now that, you know, companies are see some um, transparency, you know, um, get some clarity into uh, the year ahead. Uh, we'll likely see a GDP boost from from inventory builds um, um, which is kind of the opposite of what we saw this year you know with companies cutting back on inventories which was what was weighing down GDP uh, so basically uh, inventory reaccumulation new investments uh, the consumer remaining strong because of full employment I, I could you know see a better growth environment for the US and 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 growth recovery across the world uh, in 2020 mm -hmm. because of because of that. I always find that peculiar that, you know, companies are lacking investment or lacking the confidence with uh, Brexit and the Chinese uh, Trump um, tariff deal because you look at small business and consumer confidence and they seem to be, correct me if I'm wrong, are they not at all-time highs right now? So you have this contrast between small business confidence and big business confidence. Yeah, I think that that reflects the employment situation. Um, the economy, um, you know, we've we've had um, strong employment conditions across the developed world in Europe and Japan, and then that's why I think services and consumption have not um, collapsed alongside manufacturing and industrial activity. So there is there has been this bifurcation between the consumer and the services side of the economy versus the kind of industrial sized of, of the economy and um, you know I think the worry among economists was is that well eventually the consumer and the services will, will catch up with uh, um, the downturn in, in global manufacturing and industrial activity but you know it could be the opposite we could you know with these um, macro overhangs with uh, U.S. China trade and Brexit we could actually see business activity recover and and come back up to where consumer and services are. So, um, you know, I, the employ as long as employment conditions remain solid, then, then you probably you know, will continue to see um, strong consumer confidence and, and, and that'll show up in the retail numbers and the services components of, of business surveys. And, and, um, and, and if we see a, a subsequent recovery in industrial activity, um, then that I think would only boost um, overall consumer confidence even more. Yeah, that would be great. Now, one thing that people are already starting to ask me about is the 2020 election. Naturally, 2016 was a unique year with everyone expecting if Trump were elected a big sell-off and it was what, like a five-hour sell-off <laughs> overnight and then yeah. it came roaring back. Well, what, what does the typical election year look like for the S&P if you have that data off the top of your head. And do we have any reason to believe that 2020 will be different? Yeah, I think uh, historically, 
election years have, have been generally positive for market returns and and that's because the both political parties you know have incentives to pull out all the stops to make sure that you know their con their constituencies uh, constituencies um, get get support from the government and uh, and their pro growth policies are being pursued or being proposed on both sides. Um, it's usually, I think, the second or third year um, in the election cycle that market returns are more muted. Obviously, we've we've not had that. We, you know, the, the third year uh, of this election cycle has been a game buster for the S and P. Um, so hard to say what the fourth year will look like, but um, I think as long as um, uh, the government policy remains stimulative, as long as the uh, central banks um, you know, basically remain on the sidelines. Um, I know Fed funds futures is pricing a one more rate cut next year. Fed isn't committed to doing that for the time being. But even there, I think as long as the threat of tighter policy is taken off the table, um, that should be a positive backdrop for the markets. And regardless of the, what the electoral outcome is in November, I would suspect that the the, the market should continue to benefit from that. Uh, pro-growth backdrop in the economy. Now, what happens in November, it's hard to say because we don't even know who the Democratic nominee is right now. And um, we don't really know what the platforms are that are going to be pushed um, by the Democratic Party as we head into the election. So um, it's hard to handicap how the markets will behave based on certain electoral outcomes when we don't even know, you know, what the election is, is shaping up to be uh, so far. So it sounds like you're generally constructive about 2020. Is that yes. a fair statement? Okay. Yes. I so am. with that said, you know, what, how, what kind of uh, portfolio guidance or portfolio structure can you talk about with us as you look forward to interesting opportunities next year? Well, I think, um, this year, like I said, has this year has been the theme has been long duration, long duration growth equity, long duration fixed income. I think next year will also be positive for the markets, but it's going to be short duration as opposed to long duration. What does that what I mean? mean? Sh so short duration is the opposite of the long duration play. Most of your value uh, is derived in the present as opposed to in the future. So when you think about that, that's uh, current value, that's current dividend that's um, short duration assets, that's commodities and cyclicals. So basically playing global reflation. And, um, and, and global reflation, just like with short duration, benefits from a rise in interest rates, uh, from a steepening of the yield curve, from kind of a, a normalization of the environment as businesses, now that they've seen some clarity on, on these macro uh, overhangs with Brexit and U.S. China are willing to invest again. So you have kind of this reflationary backdrop that presumably should benefit what, what, are, what I deem short duration assets, which, you know, is basically from an equity standpoint, cyclicals, value, dividend yield. Um, and then on the, on the fixed income side, um, you want to be, um, I think, um, playing for a steeper, steeper yield curve by perhaps um, emphasizing more of the short to intermediate side of the curve. Uh, and I think corporate credit will be fine. I don't, um, we don't really have opinions on high yield emerging market debt because we generally don't invest in those sectors. Um, and then, you know, this could also be a year where commodity, we seeing stronger performance out of the commodity uh, side of the um, 
asset classes, which you know have have not been able to keep up with the broader market advances that we've seen. So 2020 could could very well be the year of of global reflation and 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 uh, recovery and in, in in again what I sort of deem the short duration side of the asset class spectrum. You mentioned commodities. Uh, I assume that extends to energy companies, the energy indexes, uh, things like MLPs, where the energy index is only five. Per, I think it's less than five percent of the S and P now. Mm-hmm. It's remarkably yeah. small. The ever since uh, what 2015, when oil rolled over, the energy sector has never recovered. The yields are incredible. It seems to me like. You know, and then you, on the on the flip side, you have utilities, which are off the highs, but just remarkably high. And you have this opportunity for rotation out of things like utilities, which have been great, into energy, which has been poor. You know, th- does that fit that theme of short duration that you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think well, there are a number of things that really weighed on the energy sector. One is just investors throwing in the towel, figuring that many of these companies can't earn their cost of capital, continue to destroy capital uh, as 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 these companies focus on volume um, and output generation as opposed to profitability. Um, capital markets have effectively shut down um, for much of the um, energy sector, apart from kind of the high quality players in the space. So, so in some ways, energy could be opportunistic if, if you are one of those high quality players with a stronger balance sheet and generating cash flow. You could probably take advantage of this environment right now by buying distressed assets um, and making them more productive. So there is, I think, um, a restructuring type of opportunity that we're seeing emerging in the energy space because demand isn't collapsing. Really for energy sector as a whole to go away, you need to see global product demand go away. And we're not seeing that. It continues to increase year over year, um, despite all the gains that are being made in fuel efficiencies and the, and the push you know, for uh, energy alternatives and so forth. Global oil demand continues to grow. Yeah. How many, um, how many cyber trucks would need to be ordered in order to see a meaningful drop in oil demand? Yeah, and, and, and that electricity obviously has to get generated somewhere. Perhaps it does get a, more of that gets generated from natural gas. And, and But you don't see China cutting back its coal plant production. In fact, they're increasing their coal plant production to a point where the number of coal, uh, the amount of coal production that they're going putting online uh, far surpasses the amount of coal that is being cut back in, in the U.S. and Europe. So, you know, it, Fossil-based fuels are still here for their time being, and and so investors just have to determine whether it makes sense to continue to allocate capital to an area that historically hasn't been able to generate as much shareholder value as it is in the past. And it's really hard to change, I think, management mindset when you're so used to running a company or a business plan in a certain way for decades. Um, it's only you know investors basically boycotting you that that forces change and maybe we see some of that change take place and and as long as the demand environment remains robust then you know we we could see uh, potential greater opportunities in in the in the much maligned fossil fuel space that most much of the investment marketplace has abandoned it's funny you say boycott because i think what was about a month ago in the harvard yale football game the students kind of did a sit-in on the field so they couldn't play the game. And it was uh, kind of a a rallying cry against investing in 
these companies in the in their uh, endowment funds. So, kind of a parallel there with the investment community boycotting energy as well. You know, I think that vacuum will just get filled in other places. Mm-hmm. So, um, what we call ESG preferences or sustainability preferences um, can will will can certainly weigh on what the potential value someone is willing to assign to a company that maybe doesn't meet those principles. Uh, and so you could very well see depressed valuations for um, fossil fuel generating companies for years on out, but ultimately will they be starved for the capital they need? Uh, I just, I think it'll, it'll force them to, to become more efficient in the, in, in the capital that they are able to access. Um, it's not going to be a spigot for them. So they have to sort of operate it with the mindset of doing more with less. And if they do that, then you can still generate That's competitive your, returns your, for your investors. It just means you have to operate with a different mindset. So one more question on investments when it comes to factors. I know 3D is a factor-based shop and you have a factor-based uh, background. What factors kind of stood out to you uh, in 2019 and what, what are you looking ahead to uh, towards in 2020, you know, besides the growth versus value that we already discussed? Yeah, I think a dividend yield uh, presents more relative value, particularly from an income standpoint, than, say, corporate credit. Um, that's something that we had wrote about a couple months ago. And um, and we think that with the Fed remaining on the sidelines, um, that, that companies that have uh, both strong balance sheets but also paying out dividends, uh, I, would, I would think that appetite for that should return. Um, I don't, again, I don't anticipate the kind of multiple expansion for 2020 like what we saw this past year. So that would lead one to want to emphasize, you know, um, and when sort of looking at the contribution of total return, you would want to emphasize much of that return coming from current sources as opposed to, you know, anticipation of future. And, uh, and, and you get that with both having a value tilt and a tilt towards dividend yield. Um, I think uh, if if we do see a reflationary recovery, then that would benefit small and mid caps, perhaps allowing them to catch up with with larger cap companies that have generate uh, generate the bulk of the profitability that we've seen, um, at least here in the U.S. and um, and so you know I think the classic Fama French style of investing that has been so out of favor for the last several years you know, could potentially see a comeback coming here in 2020. Hard to say. Um, I, again, we didn't anticipate the kind of year that we saw with 2019. Um, but I think over the long run that, that, that um, being compensated for certain kinds of risks in the market, um, taking advantage of getting more of your total return from current income sources like dividend yield, I think those are the areas that, that investors will want to emphasize coming up. And now stepping away from portfolio management to financial planner, right? Talking about retirees who are taking the required minimums, you know, taking systematic withdrawals, uh, relying on the portfolio for income right now. Obviously, uh, this year has been a great year for a balanced style uh, asset allocation investment. But as we look into the future, does it make sense to have a systematic withdrawal? Does it make sense to uh, 
you know, rely on the 4% rule. What do you think uh, people need to be aware of and thinking about when it comes to retirement income and their portfolio asset allocation? If we go through a sustained period of volatility combined with rising interest rates, systematic withdrawal will suffer from a traditional balance plan. So to be clear, systematic um, withdrawal is just, you know, you take $1,000 a month from your portfolio every first of the month, and to get that money, you're selling off shares each month. You're selling right? assets, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a combination of, of taking income from your portfolio and then selling down your portfolio to generate that income. That, that's systematic. Think of it as dollar cost averaging in reverse. So what we like to say for those that advocate a what we call a time-segmented based approach to retirement income planning as opposed to systematic withdrawal, dollar cost averaging works for you when accumulating, when you're saving. You can take advantage of that volatility because that compounds over time. You know, buying, buying at various price levels through time, you, you're able to take advantage of that volatility. Um, the opposite is the case when you're taking distributions or selling because you, when in systematic withdrawal during periods of volatility, you experience what's called sequence of loss, sequence of return loss. You're basically compounding your uh, investment losses by taking, uh, with, by, by taking withdrawals or distributions during periods of volatility. You're, locking, you're effectively locking in those losses and accelerating the, the shrinking of your investment portfolio. Um, that's why we generally at 3D don't advocate for systematic withdrawal um, because we just think that um, it's hard to predict what kind of volatility regime we'll be in. And so um, it's, you're better off aligning the time horizon of your liabilities with the, with the risk horizon of your assets. Um, so what does so, that exactly mean, lining up your, your liabilities with the horizon for your investments? Um, you're talking about a different buck, a bucket approach where you have... Yeah, the bucket approach. Okay. So buckets basically mean that you have different time horizons. You, your, your asset portfolio is um, assigned or categorized by different time horizons. So, you know, if you think about investor post-retirement period uh, where you're taking distributions, you have um, short-term liabilities, short-term income needs, and then long-term needs. And um, if, you're, if your cost curve or if your glide path, what we call your glide path, stays flat through your entire period of post-retirement living, then... Um, then you could have one asset allocation sort of meet your needs uh, and, and certainly, or you could, you know, just buy annuitize your portfolio and take a flat distribution. But that doesn't take into account things like inflation, a rising glide path, particularly with uh, end of care and end of care uh, costs, medical costs and so forth. And, and so we just think that, that, that investors, um, uh, in the post-retirement period, need to plan for both current income as well as growth of future income. Um, it can't just be either a, a annuitized portfolio or it can't just be a systematic withdrawal uh, that assumes that the conditions that you have today are going to be the same for the next 30 years. And so that's why we, we say that, that, you know, and then you combine the fact that you have, um, uh, you could have potential periods of extended uh, volatility, that would weigh against the systematic withdrawal that, that your short-term income needs should be met with short-term 
risk horizons, meaning that you should take less risk with short-term income needs, and then as of, and then with longer uh, time horizons, you can take more risk. Um, and and so we just think that that rather than treating your portfolio as one asset allocation, which is what a systematic withdrawal approach assumes, um, that that you segment your portfolio across different time horizons with more conservative. Uh, portfolios for near-term income needs and more aggressive portfolios for growth of uh, future uh, potential income needs. Yeah, if you would have retired in the fall of 2007, so I think the high was like September, October 07, and you needed monthly income from your portfolio, you know, you were, sell- you were harvesting losses for approximately five years. So maybe yeah. maybe even six years because the new high was not made until, I want to say, late 2013, if I'm not mistaken. So call it five years, roughly, where you were harvesting losses each month to fund a systematic withdrawal. Whereas if you had uh, short-term assets to fund those short-term liabilities, yeah, your intermediate and longer-term portfolio would have suffered during that drawdown, but you never would have needed to sell any of those assets. Or you would have taken less income, or you would have taken no income. Um, you would try and just tighten your belt and, and, and draw it off different sources so as not to lock in those losses. Um, yeah, I like, it resonates we, a lot with me to have those short-term assets to, fund, to cover those short-term liabilities. Yeah, and um, yeah, some, some systematic withdrawal uh, proponents have, have advocated for kind of a more dynamic portfolio. Or approach, meaning that when times are good, um, you take, you know, you you're free to sort of take the normal withdrawal. But you know, when when volatility increases and so forth, maybe you pull back the reins a little bit and take less, and 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 also um, um, de-risk your portfolio somewhat. But that assumes that you can predict uh, or you can time those kinds of risks, and um, we just don't think you can do that at, at 3D. Not to say that that there. Are, that can't be done. It's just it's not something I think can be done consistently over to, over an extended period of time, like like thirty years. Um, and uh, and so um, uh, when you when you're taking withdrawals like that scenario that you said, you know, right at the peak of two thousand seven, and you start taking uh, distributions, and the market sells off over say a two year period of time, which is what we saw. Um, yeah, by the time the market recovered in in the first quarter of 2009, you would have had a much more diminished savings um, because you were taking withdrawals during the, the those periods of of, of drawdowns, uh, sell-offs in the markets, and um, and so uh, it's just we we just believe that there just needs to be a, a for retirement income planning that involves distributions, you, there just needs to be a better alignment of risks and and time horizons. Um, and that involves a multi-segment or a multi-bucket approach to retirement income planning. Outstanding. Well, Ben, what a great pleasure to speak with you today. Um, appreciate all the information and your opinions looking back at 2019 and looking ahead to 2020. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you're right with your case for optimism for 2020 and uh, look forward to continuing to work with you in the future. Appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you. You've been listening to certified financial planner Nick Hopwood and accredited investment fiduciary Jim Pilot on the Finding True Wealth podcast, 
sponsored by Peak Wealth Management. You can learn more about Peak Wealth Management by visiting peakwm.com or follow on Twitter at nhopwood1.